Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We all carry around this invisible backpack filled with the beliefs we have about ourselves, other people, and the world around us. Those beliefs come together to form a personal narrative, a story we tell about ourselves. That story is the lens we view the world through. It's an incredibly powerful force in our lives. And as we've talked about on the podcast in the past, one of the most effective ways to change how we show up in the world is by changing that underlying story. So today we're going to explore how we can change those stories into better narratives through the lens of my favorite personality typing system, the Enneagram. And to help us do that, I'm joined today by a best-selling author, a therapist, and a master teacher of the Enneagram, Ian Cron. Ian uses the Enneagram personality typing system as a tool to help people cultivate self-awareness and find happiness. And he's the host of the wildly popular podcast, Typology, which has over, I think, 17 million downloads or something crazy like that. His books include The Enneagram Primer, The Road Back to You, The Spiritual Memoir, Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me, and his most recent book, The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. So Ian, thanks so much for doing this today. How are you doing? I'm doing well and excited for our conversation. Yeah, same. I've been really looking forward to this. I love the Enneagram. My friends know I love the Enneagram. I talk it with them whenever I'm given even a spare opportunity to do so. And given what we're talking about here today, I would actually just love to start with your story. You've told it in your books in detail, so we're just going to kind of touch on some of the broad strokes here. But what were some of the narratives that you used to tell about yourself, and how have those changed over time? You know, I grew up in a you know, really a profoundly troubled home. My father was a chronic alcoholic and drug addict, died at 63 of that disease. His two sisters died from it. Wow. I'm in 12-step recovery for alcohol and drug addiction for many years. And in many ways, that addiction was launched by the narratives that I subscribed to in childhood mm. that unfortunately I unconsciously dragged into adulthood. Yeah. And then, the, of course, they began to govern and tyrannize my life mm -hmm. without my knowing it, right? And so the, I think the messages, there were so many that I picked up as a kid were obviously the, the classic one for children of addicts and alcoholics. It's all my fault, right? Yeah, yeah. Another narrative I picked up was that there's something fundamentally missing in my essential makeup that renders me unworthy of love and relationship. Yeah. Another narrative might be no matter what happens, it's my fault, right? Mm. It, like in relationships mm -hmm. or in life. Totally. Know? And I could, of, I could, of course, I could come up with a, a long inventory of all the, the narratives that I, I carried into adulthood from childhood and that, you know, and that I continue to work with in my personal life, in times of meditation, in countless settings, really, to begin to unwind them. Right. Mm -hmm. Or to learn how to observe those stories when they launch mm. and to not allow them to run the show. I think that's a great way to talk about it. One of the things that we know well from psychology is that children who grew up in troubled households, particularly with distant, avoidant, emotionally abusive parents, whatever the, the context of it might be, is that there's this very tender and touching process that happens inside kids where rather than viewing their parent as the problem, they view themselves as the problem mm -hmm. because it's actually safer for them to have a perception of the world where the issues are inside of them and therefore under their control, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being kind of bad luck and 
the province of circumstance or God or whatever you want to give it up to. Um, and so you internalize those forms of suffering. And were there ways that you worked with that as you aged? Did you kind of work to retell those stories? I think I leveraged my experiences. I, I hmm. became a psychotherapist. I later became an Episcopal priest. And as I mentioned to you earlier, before you hit record, I, I often self-describe as a, a Buddhist Christian, right? <laughs> I've, been, I, I have, I've been profoundly affected, uh, particularly yeah. by t- my study and practice of meditation in the mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhist uh, tradition. Yeah. And so I find myself in this, uh, as one friend of mine likes to say, you know, Ian, when it comes to religious traditions, it seems to me you like to sleep around. And I, <laughs> I'm always like, well, I mean, I suppose that's one way you could, you could look at it. But it works for me, you know. And so yeah. I say that because I, the way I've worked it with it is uh, through my own self-exploration and through my own spiritual and psychological journey that has been circuitous, painful, mm-hmm. a joyous liberating and at times discouraging, you know, all the things we experience as we begin to walk in our inner architecture, if you will. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm content. I work on it every day, man. We're, our, yeah. we're, we're, Don't we're we all, all recovering. Right? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all recovering children. So, you know, yeah. we're all trying to figure it out. I love that line, by the way, we're all recovering children. We're going to we're gonna pull that one. I'm going to think about that one. I think it's a great way to talk about just so much of the stuff that we explore in the show. So as I said during the introduction, you are a deep, deep teacher of the Enneagram, and it's sort of the lens through which you present a lot of your work. And it itself is a very complex system. This isn't really intended as an Enneagram 101 episode, but I do think it might be helpful for people who are a bit less familiar to have a sense of its basic structure. And would you mind kind of giving a quick overview? Sure. Well, the Enneagram, simply put, is a personality typing system that teaches that there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to protect ourselves, to cope, and to navigate the new world of relationships in, in which we find ourselves. And I love your framing of it that you give in general, where you talk about it as these nine stories that people subscribe to in childhood that maybe don't work out so well for them in adulthood. And you have a a framing attached to that. There's this movement from what you call a passion to a virtue inside of the structure of the Enneagram. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's fascinating. This is an ancient typing system. And so one Mm. of the things that the earliest pioneers of it recognized is that Each of these nine types has a passion or a fixation called, uh, well, as you mentioned, a a passion. And this is a powerful, emotional, motivating force Mm. that operates unconsciously in each of us. And each of those types, and they drew them, by the way, from the seven deadly sins. Someone along the way added two. A presumptuous plus a little extra, totally. Plus a little extra, right? (laughs) You know, for me, for example, I'm a type four. They're known as the romantics. They're... Mm -hmm temperamental, they're moody, they are highly creative, empathic, and imaginative, disproportionately represented in the world of the creative arts. And fours, the passion of the four is envy, right? Mm. And and so envy for the four reveals itself in the way that we always compare ourselves to other people and, of course, come out under the pack 
you know, it, it reveals itself in the, in the way that we envy really the happiness of others, you know, the seeming ease with which they move through the world. And so that's how envy, the passion of envy works out for the four in brief. But each of those eight other types have their own, right? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's kind of a cool, and, and actually, the Enneagram is an uncannily accurate system, right? Yeah, in my experience, for sure. Yeah, and what I love about it is that it's remarkably accessible, right? It's unlike Myers-Briggs. I mean, in grad school, I, I studied Myers-Briggs. I still don't understand how it works. You know, if, if you, I'm not saying it's not good. Yeah. I just, it's not something you can like read about. And then, you know, you kind of need a workshop in it to kind of figure it out, right? Yeah. Not so with the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. You know, the Enneagram is, is written beautifully for, you know, a person who just picks up a book and begins to, to look into it. So it's a lovely system of self-knowledge that leads to a profound self-awareness if you choose to do the work. Yeah, I experience Myers-Briggs and similar systems like that to be pretty top-down. They're pretty, they have this mm-hmm. very established sort of cognitively driven structure, and, uh, you know, four letters, different variations thereof. It feels very mechanical. Whereas I experience the Enneagram generally as being quite holistic, sort of bottom-up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is very driven by archetype. And, and I find mm-hmm. that in the language that's often attached to the different numbers where you just said that, you know, you've got the four, the romantic or the artist or d- different words that people use to it. I identify as a six, which is often referred to as the loyalist. Nines are peacemakers, you know, threes are achievers or just all of this kind of language around it gives you something that you can really attach to. And I think that that archetypal nature of it really plays into the storytelling aspect, which is what you mm. focused so much of your of your work on, this kind of journey that we all go on through our lives as we try to realize the higher self aversion of ourselves, as opposed to the one that can get kind of trapped in those negative coping traits. Yes, ab- absolutely. And that was a discovery I made after really studying the Enneagram for some years, right? Yeah. And you see, I also began to dabble in narrative therapy, which also mm. you know, sort of mm-hmm. got my, my wheels turning, you know? Totally. And, and I remember one day going, because you know, you're well familiar with psychology, so you know that personality is a hotly contested debate in the world of psychology, right? There's every yeah. school has a different opinion about personality development. And, and, and so, you know, I, as I read more and more about the Enneagram, I, I was like, yeah, okay. Personality type. Okay. But then I was like, no, no, no. These are stories. These mm. are narratives that people inhabit. And look, people can say, well, you know, are you actually saying Ian, that there are only nine narratives or stories that people <laughs> inhabit? I mean, there are 7 billion people who've lived on the planet. And I'm like, yeah. well, when you stop to think about it, there are only seven stories in literature, basic stories mm, in, in mm-hmm. literature, right? If we were to go through them, tragedy, comedy, we could go through them, right? So I don't know if they're the only nine stories. All I know is that I have seen them appear so often in the general population that we should just pay attention to them. Yeah, no, totally. One of the things that's really lovely about the Enneagram is the flexibility of the system, because sure, there are these nine types, but they all show up for us in different ways. We just have core stories that we organize ourselves around. Mm-hmm. Then inside of the types, some versions of the system have various subtypes, as you all know, and they all have relationships with each other, and it could become this like very, very fleshed out thing. So as long as I have you here, I would love to get your take on some of the common limiting stories that are told by the different types. Well, for example, um, let's take one. So let's just start there. Ones are, are I, I call them the improvers. Their mm. previous signifier was the perfectionists, and and yeah. but I got so many complaints from ones <laughs> that that, that <laughs> of they, course you did, right? You know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, why why is our 
signifier the only one that has sort of a negative sounding mm. uh, bias. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, you are genius at improving things. So let's run with that. So once they're conscientious, they're detail oriented, they're self-disciplined, and really they're morally heroic people. But the underlying false premise of their story is that the world loves and rewards only good people and judges bad ones. Mm-hmm. So if you're trapped in the improver's self-limiting story, you try to gain love and a sense of really of control by tamping down anger and meeting your own high internal standards and seeking to perfect yourself in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, that will help a little kid make sense of life early on, right? Totally, yeah. But when you drag that story into adulthood and continue to live by its dictates, you're kind of screwed. (laughs) Like that story does not play out well in your relationships, at work, anywhere, right? It'll really get you. Conflict with other people, a lot of frustration. Oh, yeah. I mean, and really a lot of, all of these stories cause a lot of suffering. Yeah. What happens when we drag these stories into adulthood is eventually, we eventually start to feel like we're just not at home in them. Yeah. And we start to feel this existential malaise or nausea, like existential nausea, like this thing, mm-hmm. whatever I'm in right now, it is not working for me. Mm-hmm. And in therapy and other places, when I work with people, I'm always like, I don't know, it just sounds like you're stuck in a broken story. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. and you have the agency and the power to change that story. Yeah. You can't change the facts of the past, but you can change your relationship to them and to mm. the story that they sort of launched in, into your life. Mm, mm-hmm. But let's, uh, let's pop to sixes because you're a six, right? Yeah, great. Totally. So y'all are called the loyalists. That's the archetype story, yeah. right? And you're warm, you're trustworthy, you're down to earth, you're practical, typically witty because you, you, <laughs> you tend to be very anxious people. And uh, anxiety can be very funny when it's communicated in the right way, right? I mean, you think about George Costanza, right, on uh, Seinfeld, or you think about, oh, I don't know, I could give a list of them, but great comedians that I've heard, many of them are sixes. A lot of wit comes from underlying concern, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes, right? (laughs) So, so, but the, the loyalists story revolves around their belief that the world is a dangerous place in which Mm. the only way to feel safe and certain is to remain hypervigilant, forge strong alliances, and prepare for the worst, for it is going to happen in the mind of a six, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of, as one friend of mine who's a six likes to say, I struggle from pre-traumatic stress disorder. Right. It's like this kind of waiting, (laughs) waiting. And so now that story will help. For example, I know lots of sixes who grew up in alcoholic or troubled, you know, unpredictable environments. And of course, that helps you then as a little kid, right, to survive. That story helps you. Sure. But man, it can hurt you in adulthood. Mm. You know, like Mo Willems, the great children's author, has a great quote. He says, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, leave. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I think with all nine of these stories, these archetypes, that the realization that we can leave is profound. Yeah. Now, not easy work, but it can be done. To just kind of keep on going with that, with the sort of six narrative, sixes are funny. They're often kind of difficult to type for a lot of different reasons, one of Mm -hmm. which being that they're 
their response to fear shows up in different kinds of ways. I'm a weird six. I'm a counterphobic six, which means that uh, I kind yes. of push away my fear by telling people the 10,000 reasons that they don't actually have to be worried about something um, mm -hmm. while also scanning the room for the exit sign, which is something that I'm certainly good for. I also had the, the benefit of growing up in a extremely secure family environment and psycho-emotional environment at home, but my relationship with other people out in the world was far less secure. I had a lot of trouble with kids at school, things like that, a lot of social discomfort, so that's where a lot of my anxiety comes through. And yes, as people on the who listen to the podcast regularly certainly know, I had a very, very hard time with the word loyalist for a sex for a long time because I was like, I don't think of myself as really searching outside of myself for allegiance to something until I looked at it a little bit more deeply and I found what I was connecting to, which was basically theory. Like I look mm -hmm. outside myself for things to believe in and what I chose to believe in was science and well-validated processes and these grounds that I think that I can rely yeah, on. Sure. Yeah, and so that was my version of it. And so I think that that kind of tells a cool version of just the Enneagram in general, which is that these stories can show up in really different ways. And just because you don't have a classic presentation doesn't necessarily mean you're not showing characteristics. Yeah. Absolutely. And you've actually raised a great point, which is that mm. we know that personality, I think we know, that personality is both hardwired mm -hmm. and it's also environmentally totally. influenced right or formed yeah. so it's not just this isn't about parent bashing or you know it's like there are other voices that shape our personality right we have coaches we have peers totally. we have cultural forces that create personality you know so there's a it's so complex about how we find our way into these stories that help us make sense of ourselves in the world and with sixes, you're also very right. We may not necessarily look to a human authority figure to provide a sense of certainty, to give us answers to questions we didn't even know we were supposed to ask. Yeah. Really, it could be, you know, I meet lots of sixes, for example, in Buddhist communities, right? Who totally. are very, very locked into certain sets of beliefs, which of course would not be what the Buddha would want them to do. However, they, they get very, very uh, tied to them. And if you challenge yeah. those things, they become very defensive. Very defensive. Because, yeah, totally. because it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, man. You you don't know that this is where, this is my sense of ground. Yeah, here, yeah. Right? I mean, Ian, one of my lines is that doubt is my drug of choice. And that is just totally true mm -hmm. for my personality. Right. I am a chronic skeptic, a chronic doubter. And I think that that's where my anxiety is coming through because it's this underlying mm -hmm. question of like, can I really trust this? And that's totally been my growth journey mm. to just, for starters, rely on my own self-knowing as opposed to appealing to external authority outside of myself from which I needed to derive all of my, my ground, my substance, whatever you want to call it. And getting in touch with that has been, been a long process and been a, a complicated mm. journey, for sure. Mm-hmm. Even though this isn't intended as an Enneagram 101 episode, we talked a little bit about the one, the four, and the six in the course of our conversation, and I thought that the other types might be feeling a little bit left out. So this is actually Forrest from the future. I've recorded this after my conversation with Ian has ended. Our time with him was a little bit limited today, and I wanted to spend it exploring some other topics. Uh, and I thought that I could just give you guys a little rundown on the Enneagram system as a whole and the stories told by each of the types. 
So as we've already said, the Enneagram is broken into nine personality types. Those nine types are themselves organized into three triads, three groups of three. The first is the gut or instinct or anger triad. Pick your word of choice. And that makes up the points eight, nine, and one. Then the second group is the heart group or the feeling group or the shame group. And these are the points two, three, and four. And then the third triad is the thinking or the head or the fear group of points. And that is five, six, and seven. The Enneagram is sometimes referred to as a negative personality system. And the reason for that is that the system is organized around core fears or concerns that each of the points is trying to grapple with or avoid in their life. So to give a quick rundown on each of the points, starting with that instinct center, the eights are sometimes known as challengers. They are powerful and self-confident and decisive and dominating. Their underlying story is that it is a dog-eat-dog world out there where the powerful dominate the weak. So you better be powerful. Their basic fear is that they might be hurt by other people or controlled by them. And a big growth point for AIDS can be reconnecting with their softer, more vulnerable emotions that maybe they've tamped down inside. Then moving on to nines, nines are sometimes known as peacemakers. They tend to be reassuring and agreeable, and it is very easy for them to move into sloth. The basic story of the nine is that the world believes that their presence doesn't matter, and therefore the only way that they can stay a part of the group is by going with the flow. And a big edge for nines can be getting in touch with their own desires, their own interests out in the world, and then moving into action around them. We already talked about ones a bit, but they're sometimes known as the reformer or the perfectionist or the improver. They tend to be rational, idealistic, and very oriented toward a particular view of the way they believe the world should be. Now entering the shame-oriented types, the three is often known as the achiever or the performer. They are highly success-oriented. They are very image-conscious. They're sometimes known as chameleons because they can blend in in any social setting. They are self-assured. They are ambitious. They are attractive often. They are very, very charming. And so this sounds like a lovely point, so what's the problem, right? Well, the problem is that the three believes that the only way that they can be valued by others is if they continue to achieve, if they perform at a high level, and that they are nothing without their successes. Because of this, their basic fear is of being worthless, of having nothing to contribute. So one of the big challenges for the three is coming increasingly into contact with a greater sense of internal worth as opposed to worth that's derived from the outside. So in a pretty ironic twist, I just totally forgot about twos there. But twos are known as helpers. They are very giving. They are caring. The twos listening to this were probably like, oh, well, you know, Forrest has done a lot of recording today. He's probably got a lot on his mind. He just shouldn't worry about it. It's, it's really okay. We'll just, we'll be here if you need us. The problematic story of the two is that they can't be valued for who they are, but only for what they do for other people. They are extremely love-oriented. Their basic fear is of being unwanted or unworthy of love, and their desire is to achieve that love. 
One of the difficult things with twos is that they can often lapse into this form of controlling other people through the gifts that they give to them. A classic example of this might be a parent who gets a gift for a child for Christmas. That isn't something that the child actually wants, but it's something that the parent thinks that the child should want. And then they put a lot of pressure on the child to get the most value that they can out of the gift that the child never really wanted in the first place. Moving on to the head center, the thinkers, fives are the investigators. They are intense, they are highly perceptive, and they tend to be very cerebral. The core story of the five is that the world is excessively intrusive and demands more of them than they could ever reasonably give. They tend to be great accumulators of knowledge, and their core fear is that they'll be useless, that they won't know, that they'll be helpless because of that lack of knowing. Because the world needs so much from them and they aren't sure that they have the resources to give, they tend to tamp down their own needs and move into this position where they are observing life rather than actually participating in it. We also talked about sixes in some detail, so let's move along to sevens. Sevens are often known as the enthusiasts. They're very busy, they're very fun-loving, they seek variety, they're spontaneous, and they're often but not always quite extroverted, particularly socially. The passion of the seven is gluttony. Not always in a literal sense, but they are consumers of experiences. They seek pleasure often above all else. And they do this because their underlying narrative is that painful emotions, experiences, settings, anything that's uncomfortable must be avoided at all costs because they fear being overwhelmed and trapped in pain. They tend to have problems with impatience and impulsiveness and can get kind of distracted or even exhausted by constantly staying on the go. Their ultimate desire is to be satisfied and truly content. So I hope you found this little rundown helpful, and I hope it didn't drag on too long as well. I'm very into the Enneagram, so I'm always happy to talk about it in some detail. So now we're getting back to my conversation with Ian. Well, I would love to give some kind of concrete examples here of how people can push back on some of those problematic stories that we tell about ourselves. Uh, you have a number of practices that I've heard you give on your podcast and also through your book. Um, and I was wondering if you could share maybe one or two of them. I really believe that one of the most powerful tools, if not the most powerful tool in my life at least, that helps us to be able to examine and to interrogate the stories that we find ourselves in is a regular practice of meditation. Now that could be yeah. mindfulness meditation, that could be centering prayer if you're from the Christian tradition, totally. it could be as you know, in, within the Buddhist tradition, there are lots of schools of ways of practicing meditation. Yeah. All to say, however, that for me, what's so powerful about it is that it gives us the capacity to step back, self-observe, and recognize when the gravitational pull of our old broken story, our old riven childhood narrative mm. has taken hold, right? And to be able to gaze at it with great compassion and even a sense of humor and to say, now, you know, do I really want to return to that story and live according to its rules and regulations? Mm -hmm. I find that when I'm able to do that, that the 
arthritic grip that those old stories have on us begins mm. to loosen. Yeah. Just begins to loosen a little bit, you know? Totally. If not, just it evaporates, you know, because you realize this story is not monolithic, right? It's it's more cloud-like. It's more vaporous, right? It's yeah. it's just a story, man. It's just a story. It's just a set of coherent thoughts that are just running in a loop. Yeah. And they totally. they really don't they don't mean what we think they mean. We we mm. over-identify who we are with the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Yeah. And we we want to be able to find liberation from that mm. and to find freedom from suffering. Mm. The suffering that it causes. So let me just give give folks a an acronym that I use. Yeah, great. It's called SOAR, S-O-A-R. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a very quick sort of look at the journey of exhuming the old story and of working to liberate ourselves from it. And this is true for each of the nine stories, the archetypes of each of those nine stories. First one is to see, S-E-E, right? The author Wendell Berry once wrote this great line. He says, if you don't know where you're from, you'll have a hard time saying where you're going. Now, we all know, uh, anyone who's been in therapy or is a therapist knows that's true for sure, right? So the first step of transformation, I think, using the Enneagram uh, is to see where your old story began, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just to look at the hurtful events, the unchallenged, taken-for-granted beliefs, and the unhelpful internalized messages that continue to rule our life today right? So that's just, that's step one. We just got to see it, man. And right. Then after we've sort of uncovered our origin story, if you will, then we, we really move on to owning it. Mm. So this involves exploring the shadow as well as the strengths of each of those archetypes, those personality styles and stories. It's an uncomfortable, but healing exercise. But as you know, information isn't transformation. Right. It, yeah. Like totally. They're two. They're two different animals, right? We 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 like to confuse them. We think if we read a yeah. book on something that we're actually doing it. When that's mm. the, you know, how many books on meditation have you read? Um, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> and then and then never find your way to the yeah. cushion, right? Absolutely. So I think that's a human a human deal, right? So we have to really begin to own that these stories have a cost and they've had Mm. a cost in our own lives. You know, I think about it in my life that I had to see how the story of the romantic that I adopted as a child Mm. Mm -hmm. has created so much harm in my life as an adult. I've had to inventory that. Mm. I've had to really look honestly at how it affected my relationships. Now, none of this is to be done in an atmosphere of shame or unkindness it just has to be done with a kind of disinterested curiosity, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, so it did this. Oh, it did that. Oh, and it had that. Now, I'm not saying that grieving the losses associated w- with our story isn't right. I'm just saying I'm always trying to move, carefully move people away yeah. from thinking that, oh, I got to beat myself up because how this story has affected me in, in adulthood, right? Well, it's the it's the fantastic line, a, a fearless and searching inventory, if, if I'm paraphrasing that correctly, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Then awaken is the third, right, step in this process. This is about moving into the present, right? Mm. You know this, our old stories, our old narratives have a trance-like quality, don't they? Oh, sleepwalking. Yeah, that's the, the yeah, word I man. use for it's, it all the time. Yeah, sleepwalking. 
Yeah. And we just sleepwalk in our old stories, right? Yeah. And so awakening has to do really also with beginning to wake up to how certain situations and stresses can trigger mm. us back into our old narratives, right? Mm. We want to live wide awake. You know, it's very, it's very interesting to me. But if you were to take all of the teachings of the great mystics, right? Mm. And I think this is across traditions. And you were to try and compress them into a single sense, like what were they teaching? It would be this, wake up. I mean, that's as basic, as basic as it gets, right? Pretty much, yeah. That's true. It's true in Christianity. It's true in Buddhism. It's true. Totally. I can't, you know, I could go on and on and on. It just essentially comes down to wake up. And so awakening is a, awakening to the story, knowing when it launches, knowing when it's triggered, knowing what to do when we catch ourselves in the act, right? And then finally, the rewrite, S-O-A-R, we're on the R now, rewriting really has to do with what do we want our transformed future to look like? Mm. A friend of mine asked a question to me the other day that threw me back on my heels. I love great questions. He said something to the effect of, what could you do today to make your future self proud? Great line. I was really taken aback. Isn't that a great question? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Yeah. What I began to think about in this rewrite was, what kind of story could I write today that would make my future self proud and happy. Mm. In fact, even as I say it, I feel a little moved by the question. Yeah, right? totally. That's a very affecting question. Yeah, and it because it has so much hope in it, right? That we yeah. have the power to, to make these choices and changes, right? And what's so beautiful, and you'll understand this, which is that once you've cleared away the debris, by going mm. through seeing the story, owning the story, awakening to the story. At that point, your new story will begin revealing itself without your having to force it. Like it just will emerge like green shoots coming up from the dirt, right? Yeah, totally. And in fact, sometimes I, I like to tell people, you know, the harder you try, the harder this gets. You know, mm. it's like just make space for this, right? And that's part of the rewriting process is this ability. Once you've seen and owned and awakened, now step back a bit. And in addition to perhaps journaling about the values you have and, and trying to align your life with them in this new story. Yes, all very important. But a lot of it is the discipline of sitting back and trusting that your authentic self will emerge. Mm -hmm. Your original self will emerge on its own once you clear away the debris. I want to return to one specific thing you mentioned earlier about just the self-awareness aspect of this, where I've got kind of two minds about it, where on the one hand, I think that most of the time people know what they should be doing out in the world. The trick is, as you were saying, you know, information is not transformation. The trick is going out there and doing it. But often the problem for people is really understanding what's stopping them fundamentally from being that green shoot coming out of the earth. And self-awareness is one of the most difficult things, as you know, to teach in therapy, to just like get people mm -hmm. aware of their own internal processes. But the first thing you got to do in the outline that you kind of gave there is to see, to see clearly. What do you think helps people become more self-aware generally, but really help them recognize that narrative that they're trapped in? Well, you know, self-awareness is one of these big bucket terms that means about yeah. a million things. Sure. And, you know... I think the, that C process is really about getting self-knowledge is a process of self-discovery. 
it's really a process of making a connection between the old story and the way that it's playing out in your life in the present moment. You might know this story about the Buddhist teacher. He had a a student that was complaining about his childhood and all the things that happened to him. Mm -hmm. And he turned to the student and he said, how long will you carry this corpse with you? Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a great moment in the life of the student. And so I think seeing is about viewing the corpse, if you will, and and then asking yourself the question, how long do you want to carry this story around? I mean, like, does this seem to be serving you? You know? Yeah, yeah. Did you, if you don't mind me asking here, was there an inflection point from you where often people have like a key moment? Sometimes it's stretched out over a long period of time, but at least just in my experience talking to people about it, it feels like often people have a key moment where they have that moment of insight, that moment of reflection, where they go from just kind of walking to seeing the personality material and what the heck is going on here. What was that like for you? Did you have one of those? Oh, man, I've had many, but the one that really hit me, I was 28 years old. Mm. I had just come into recovery. I was a mess. And, you know, I had been to treatment. I mean, it was just really, I was in a very, very vulnerable place. I had this smart, and it's it's ironic, right? But I had this wonderful sponsor. His name was Jack. And Jack Mm. was a 70-year-old Jungian analyst and an Episcopal priest. I mean, you can't make that up. Love that. And Jack heard me tell my story one night. He volunteered me to tell my story at what's called a 12-step speaker meeting, right? Mm. And I had to get up there at 28 and tell my story. It includes all my childhood trauma and how did I end up as an alcoholic and a drug addict. And it was actually a very beautiful, nerve-wracking evening of telling that story to a room of about 200 people. Yeah, 200 people, right? Staring at a 28-year-old. Pretty exposed. And so, oh yeah, yeah. And so Jack on the way home, he used to smoke a Cuban cigar and he, he it's just all the smoke is wafting out the window of my Toyota Corolla. And he looked at me at one point, he goes, Ian, do you ever wonder if you're living in the wrong story? Hmm. And yeah, you know, I was 28 years old. What did I know? And my, my head was foggy with all kinds of, you know, <laughs> who knows what I just trying to get my life together, you know? Yeah. And, I didn't really understand the import of that question until I got older. That mm. that what he heard me tell that night, the story I told that ni- that night about myself was wasn't true. Mm. Like it was it was how I had interpreted my childhood. Not do, do you know what I'm saying? It Absolutely. Yeah. What's that great line that someone said that about it's not what happened to you in childhood that matters, it's what you think happened to you. Yeah, I mean, there are a ton of reflections that are exactly focused in that. And this idea of, this is a whole ball of wax that I don't want to get to in the end of our conversation here, but just like the ways in which we do, to an extent, construct our relationship with our memory, just in the same way that our memory itself is, in a sense, constructed. And so we integrate all of these experiences into something that approximates a continuous flow of self, but our integration process itself can be defensive as protecting us from seeing things clearly, from holding our own behavior clearly, whatever it is. And that is a very, very complex process. And so sometimes it can be hard to kind of get in there and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to maybe circle back and answer your question a little bit more broadly. Yeah. Why is self-awareness so hard? Because it's scary. Yeah. You know, when you begin the process of seeing and owning and awakening and you begin to realize that your old story is just a story, it's not solid ground, then you realize, well, then who am I? 
Yeah, people if I, get if I don't have it, yeah, I mean, who am I if this isn't my story? And it's, you know, at least it's the devil I know. It stinks, mm. but at least it's the devil I know. And so I think a lot of times it's hard for people to, they need somebody to, as a companion on that journey. It's not, it's not an easy one to take alone. Mm. And so finding a teacher, finding a therapist, finding a spiritual director, whatever your tradition encourages is terribly important. People like Jack, I, I, you know, I will say this, I have been so blessed because when I reflect on my life, I've been at so many junctures along the way. So many people have extended great kindness to me mm. and have taken me under their wing or, or in one brief conversation have bestowed a blessing of some kind that left me changed. So mm. yeah, don't do it alone. It's kind of a difficult task if you do. Yeah, I think that in much the same way, I've been really benefited by the relationships that I've had with people that have been a little bit further along the path in a variety of ways. I was talking with my partner, her name's Elizabeth, she's training to be a somatic psychologist. And one of the things that she said, and she's starting to work with clients, she's in graduate school right now in her practicum, is that you know she's got plenty of her own shit that she's still working on. So the point is not to be free of your own garbage. The point to an extent is to have a little bit of a better recognition of a certain kind of garbage than the person that you're interacting with. And that for me is like such a freeing way to hold it because I think that sometimes people get this kind of very tight view of liberation, whatever you want to call it, where you need to just be free of all of your negative personality material. And one of the things that I like about the Enneagram is that it has this sense of like levels of development, which some people attach to, some people don't. But in the Enneagram story of it, it's not like you're a saint if you reach the highest level of development. It's just that you've integrated all of the aspects of your authentic personality. And that's a really, really lovely holding of it, I think. Mm, I like that very much. And I'm a big, big fan of Carl Jung. And of course, yeah. that of course is right out of his playbook. Totally. Right. That we can, we want to exhume this material and then integrate it into our lives to knead into the dough or back into the dough of ourselves, the shadow and the golden shadow, right? Into mm. our into our person and uh, individuate, differentiate to divorce ourselves from the unhelpful messages and stories of our past that we might go into the world as our true selves. I would love to ask you if you're comfortable talking about it. You've mentioned the broken aspects of your story, the parts of it that you really had to work with or heal from, integrate, whatever it is, I, I would love to kind of hear the flip side of that. Like, what are you shooting for these days? And what are the more virtuous elements of the forest story, if you want to think about it that way, that you've increasingly attached to as a form of narrative? Yeah, you know, thank you for saying that, because one of the things I like about the Enneagram as compared to other systems of personality is that it reveals that what's best about you is what's worst about you. And what's worst about you is what's best about you. And so, yeah, I thought you were going here. This is great. Yeah. You know, for an Enneagram for the, the romantic, as I mentioned earlier, our superpower is empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, we are very comfortable walking people through the dark passages of life. Yeah. We are really great at, at helping to move people to own parts of themselves that previously they've disowned, right? Mm. You know, we're really good in those liminal spaces, you know, like like back when I was a an active Episcopal priest in a 
I used to say, I'm great at funerals. I'll take a funeral over a, a wedding any day of the week. <laughs> you know, you go to a funeral, man, and it's down to business. You know, we're, 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 in, the, we're in the trenches now. And, and as a four, I'm very comfortable in that space. I'm comfortable yeah. in a room with, with a dying mm. person and their family. I'm very comfortable, whole, you know, in a room with a woman delivering a baby. I'm very in these kinds of sacred transcendent spaces. Mm. You know, I'm mm-hmm. very, very comfortable. You know, we are very imaginative and creative and we, we see the world and we're very good at finding redemption in suffering and loss. Now, that's how I write books, man. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is the, I love these aspects of myself, yeah, you totally. know, I thrive in, in those kinds of environments. And so I think every type has a collection uh, or a bouquet of superpowers that they bring to life's table. Mm. And so all to say each type in its healthiest expression, in its most self-aware expression is absolutely beautiful and Mm. necessary in the human family. Right. Mm -hmm. But of course that all depends on the degree of self-awareness. The lower we go down on the, on the self-awareness quotient, the more likely it is that each of these types is going to bang guardrail to guardrail through people's lives. Yeah. Right. Totally. So I, I, and I guess one of the other things I'm working on these days, of course, is what I talk about in my new book, the story of you, which is decoupling myself from those old internalized messages and ideas and stories and beliefs that I might create space for a more authentic mm-hmm. expression of myself to arise. You know, I learned to dislike this word true self because it, it sounds like an arrival point when, when the human person is a process. It's We're not mm-hmm. things, we're processes, right? And yet I, I do think that at our core, there is something about us that is, dare I say, eternal, that, that, is, mm. a, that is original and good, but beautiful untouched by trauma and hurt. And that beautiful, but Thomas Merton called it the immortal diamond uh, mm, at our center. Mm-hmm. And to live, trying to remove those things that obscure the immortal diamond at my center, at my core. Mm. To me, that's my work. And, and my work is helping others to do the same. Yeah, I love that. And authenticity is absolutely the the leading edge for me these days. Is I, I think that that's a great way to put it. Finding my own voice inside of my work, uh, whether that's what I'm doing here on the podcast or elsewhere, finding ways that confidence can come from within instead of coming from without. And I think that maybe a way of talking about what you just said is that each of these points, each of these types is finding their own authentic expression that, as you said, is unobscured by whatever limiting beliefs, whatever negative story has been piled on top of it over time. Yeah. I mean, in narrative therapy, for example, and I think just in general, the the sort of the general wisdom is that all of us have a story. We're telling Mm. it to ourselves all the time. We organize our identities and our personalities around those stories. In fact, some therapists would say that your personality is a story that you tell yourself about who you are and how the world works. And, And so, you know, part of the journey then is to recognize that the story stands in the way of the emergence of the authentic self. Yeah. Right. And again, as I mentioned, you know, if we could just clear the debris and that's what I sort of walk people through in the story of you, it will just reveal itself to us. It's, it's there. 
It's it's not like we have to invent it. It's already in you. Yeah. Right? The Buddha teaches that. Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you. You know what I'm saying? Like this is totally. what I think that what they're referring to. That's I think a fantastic note to wrap our conversation today on because it is such a hopeful and I think deeply true outlook on just the human condition broadly. So Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a complete delight. Today, I had a wonderful time talking with Ian Cron about the Enneagram and the stories we tell about ourselves. As we talked about at length during the conversation, our personal narratives have an enormous influence on how we see ourselves and the world around us. And they often, over time, calcify. They become these suits of armor that we move through the world in. And often those suits of armor are a couple sizes too small. One of the ideas that Rick often uses is the idea of an invisible cage. We're holding the bars of this cage in front of us. But if we just look to the left or to the right, we would see that there is truly no cage there at all. We're the ones who are constricting the ways in which we show up in the world. And so I began by talking with Ian about his personal story and the ways in which it's changed over time. He came from a very challenging family background, a alcoholic parent, and had his own struggles with substance addiction. Children who come from insecure family environments often come to believe that they are the problem, that they are being punished for their own behavior, for their own lack of appropriate moral character, or just for something that's deeply wrong and kind of flawed about them. And this played into Ian's broader story as the four. Their melancholy is often driven by the deep inner concern that they are worthless, valueless, that they have no substance on their own. And this can lead them to become envious of what other people have, which they then can cover over with either a negative grandiosity, oh, woe is me, I am truly the worst person, or a positive grandiosity, which can show up as different forms of narcissistic behavior. And one of the things that we talked about in detail during the conversation were the ways in which we can integrate these aspects of personality into a healthier, truer version of our authentic story. Because as Ian said beautifully later on in our conversation, the problematic parts of each of the types are also the beautiful parts of each of the types. There's this wholeness to the system that's really lovely. We then spent a little time talking about the different prominent stories told by the different types. To use myself as an example, I'm a six. And the common story told by the six is that the world is a dangerous place, so we need to be prepared. Sixes are often known as loyalists because they search outside of themselves for something to believe in. And just speaking openly for a moment, I think that I've absolutely struggled with uh, self-belief over the course of my life, with feeling like I could really rely on what I thought about something, as opposed to just regurgitating what somebody else thinks about it. Each of these nine types has its own story. And all of these stories have different kinds of limitations. They curtail our behavior in a variety of different ways. And as we open up to the greater story that's available to us, all of a sudden, so much possibility emerges out in the world. Ian then gave his SOAR acronym, which stands for See, Own, Awaken, Rewrite, a process that people can go through to evaluate their own story, 
seeing it clearly, owning its content, and owning its influence on them. And then awakening what might be possible for them, and stepping into it by rewriting that story. Perhaps even viewing what's happened to them in the past through a slightly different lens that might allow them to tell the story a little differently. Toward the end of the conversation, we talked about ways in which people can increase self-awareness. And Ian had a great point, which is that one of the primary limitations to self-awareness is fear. Maybe our story is broken. Maybe it's deeply problematic. Maybe it's holding us back from what we want to be and do out in the world, but better the devil we know than the one we don't. And so the first thing that we often need to come into contact with is our own fear, our concerns about stepping into a different way of being and doing out in the world. And it's only through addressing that fear can something else emerge in its place. Again, Ian's new book is The Story of You. I really enjoyed it myself. If you like the Enneagram, I am sure that you will love it. And you'll probably also like Ian's wonderful podcast, Typology. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And hey, you can always tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.